You are listening to March Mad Men, the podcast that sets out to be judge, jury, and executioner for the 64 most notable slasher films ever made. By pitting movies against each other, we will eliminate the unfortunate one by one, as the killers in these films inevitably do, until a single slasher stands atop the bodies of the vanquished and thrusts its favorite weapon to the sky. If you've been with us for a while but haven't reached out, I invite you to do so. Tweet me at John F underscore Evans and let me know whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever the case may be. I will thank you personally and give you a follow. Let's check in right now with my learned co-hosts, two men who definitely know what it's like to spend an entire weekend watching horror movies. First, the writer of three produced films, one of which has 25,000 reviews on IMDb, Vikram Wheat, and seasoned producer and showrunner Rich Eckersley, a 2020 Emmy nominee. Gentlemen, man, it's great to get the gang together tonight. Rich, I know you've been up to your eyes in work on a new documentary. What we all really want to know is if you're drinking water again for this one. Uh, sadly, the answer is yes. John, oh, I'm, I'm going. I'm going back. To, I am. I am going to go back to work after all this is over. I've I've learned that the real horror, the real killer of dreams, is adulthood, and the way that your <laughs> slavery to a job ultimately stocks your will to live, one by one, and then piles them up in a colorful tableau <laughs> in the corner of the room for someone to discover later. Uh, so you know, sleep well tonight. That is horrific, man. That is horrific. But you will sleep better than I, I know. Uh, because, yeah, you won't be hungover. Vic, how about you, buddy? What's going on with you? John, I had a, a fun experience when my son came out in the middle of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 last night. And I sort of paused the screen as the little girls are doing the jump rope chant. And uh, my son said, well, what, what is that? What, seven, eight, going to stay up late? What is that? And I was like, well, you know, the kids, they do the thing with the jump rope and they do the songs. And he's like, yeah, but how does it go? It's like an idiot. I did it for him. And so now he's he's going to go to school tomorrow and he's going to tell his teacher and I'm going to look like the worst fucking parent on earth. Although he didn't to my to my credit, I will say this. He didn't know what a crucifix was. And I explained that it was a cross. And so now when he does it, he says crossifix. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Pretty good. Hey, that's just basic I, cultural literacy, man. Exactly. The, the, the way that I really see that story ultimately playing out is that there's a parent-teacher conference at some point, and it gets brought up, and the teacher's like, okay, like this is the rhyme that we that we heard him say. Care to explain it? And you get to say, yeah, okay, it's a long story, but there was this one time that me and all the other parents got together because there was this child murder in our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> you get to be John Saxon. which is a good thing to be definitely and uh john saxon's gonna stop by twice tonight not literally unfortunately but metaphorically he's in two of the films we discuss this evening he's still alive no i i'm sad to report he's not 
Yeah. It wasn't too long ago either. I think he made it into the pandemic, if I'm not totally mistaken. 2019, 2020, something like that. I don't know. I feel like I, it wasn't that long ago. I'm checking right now. I miss that guy. And I didn't it, know I missed him until we started this tournament. I think he's he's approaching Ted Ramey levels of <laughs> representation. Yes. Yeah, July 25th, 2020 is when he passed away, unfortunately. All right. Well, uh, that's a buzz kill, but uh, this is going to get the buzz going again. Yes, I'm popping open a bunny with a chainsaw. One of my characteristic beers of this season, for obvious reasons. It's so cute, it will hack you to pieces. Something like that. It's cuteness will cut you to pieces. Yeah, that's the tagline. So Vic, how about you, man? What do you got going on over there? I assume it's not water for you. Though I can't see it because of your Vaseline-smeared screen. Uh, well... <laughs> John, we could explain that to the listeners, just being a, an audio medium. But I actually think it's better if we just don't. Let's just leave that hanging yeah. there. I think, it's so, I think it's self-explanatory. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am drinking a, uh, a La Fin de Monde, mm. the end of the world. Appropriate. Which is uh, quite tasty for uh, wow. an evening such as this. I didn't know you spoke French, Rick. Just a little bit. So is that like a quadruple something or other belgian whatever technically it's a triple i would put it closer to a saison that's about nine nine and a half percent nothing to write home about it's not triple that would be trace pistolas i believe oh we're talking about that it's trois pistoles well while we're uh, torturing rich with our alcoholic consumption Let's uh let's get to the business at hand and I will tell our audience what the first matchup is. It's in our peak franchise category, which of course are the heavy hitters, the big names of slasher movie history, and of course we have two of the biggest tonight, represented the Friday the 13th franchise and Nightmare on Elm Street. Specifically, we have Friday the 13th Part 2, a 6 seed in the peak franchise regional, squaring off with Dream Warriors, which is coming in at seed 11, which means it's the underdog, but let's see how things shake out. I know you guys are introducing these two films, so whoever's got uh, Friday the 13th Part 2, if you're ready, take it away. That would be me with Friday the 13th Part 2, and I'd be happy to, John. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie in quite some time. It's been over a, a decade. And I wasn't really quite sure what to, to expect going into it. But let's just back it up a little bit. This movie came out only a year after Friday the 13th Part 1. It's Jason Voorhees making his debut as a grown-ass man and as the chief antagonist instead of his mother. 1981, it's a sequel. It's directed by Steve Miner, who also was the director of a, a couple of other podcast favorites, including House, which you'll remember from, from last season, and Halloween H2O, perhaps the most polarizing film of the podcast. Woohoo! Um, that original director, Sean Cunningham, supposedly did not return because he did not feel good about his work on the first film, and I mean that in like a morally complicit kind of way. Of course, he would ultimately come back a little bit later down the line. Story-wise, though, it happens about five years after part one. And wouldn't you know it, a brooding, bag-headed maniac is slaughtering a bunch of camp counselor trainees near the old Camp Crystal Lake. 
when they originally were talking about making this thing, it was actually going to be an anthology, which I guess was something that was just like going around in the 80s because they obviously tried to do that later with Halloween 3, but they want this to be a new Friday the 13th story, something that just took place on Friday the 13th but was disconnected. But the thing is that the Jason beat where Jason jumps out and and uh, and grabs the the final girl from the uh, out of the canoe in the the lake in the first movie was such a hit, had such an impact that they ended up making this about Jason Voorhees again at the producer's insistence. And of course, several more decades of slasher history was born. Unsurprisingly, this one got pretty negative reviews. It actually made less money than than part one you know grossing about 21.7 on a budget of 1.25 so it's still definitely not a a failure and it was enough to inspire part three which was also directed by steve Miner, released only a year later finally introducing the hockey mask along with some eye-popping 3d effects coming back to it like i didn't have a great memory of this of this movie and i have been skeptical of the role that the giallo film in this subgenre, but I will say that like, you can really start to see the, the crossover here. I mean, someone is actually garroted at some point. Um, you know, this is perhaps somewhere between something like Tenebrae and like the dumb gore tipping point of later Friday films. You know, even from the first appearance of Jason, this thing, you have Jason stepping on the puddle in this first shot with like a, you know, a boot right behind a kid who's just run away. And it definitely evokes more Michael Myers than anything that you think of Jason Voorhees as being later when he becomes this monstrous zombie type character. Here, he truly is is a stalker. In terms of like the structure of the film, like I'd say that it's pretty uneven. I mean, the, the cold open, if that's what you want to call it, or the first 10 minutes of the movie is basically just a re-edit of part one, much <laughs> in the vein of Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, where that you just like, you fill out, your, you get to your 90 minutes, by including a good chunk of, uh, of the first movie and just reminded people why they were here in the first place. From there, like we get a first kill of a, of a key character, and that first kill is not that great, which does sort of set the tone. I mean, the kills in this thing are kind of weak, even compared to the first one, which is unfortunate. You know, part of that being that, that Savini left. Savini actually was briefly replaced by Winston, uh, Stan Winston, and eventually he left as, as well. What you're left off with is some, you know, relatively uninspiring kills. But that said, I think that the characters in this, in this movie are fun and funny and really full of life. I guess somewhat ironically. But like, yeah. I thought like Amy Steele's performance as Ginny in particular was especially charming and like channeled both like the naivete of adolescence and also this self-assuredness that makes her a worthy final girl, even if her solutions in the climax are pretty ridiculous and defy all story logic. I don't know if this is going to be a controversial opinion or not, but I actually found this film, at least in the context of this competition, to be top shelf. I actually think this movie, like what I got struck by like halfway through it, is that this is maybe one of the purest distillations of the form. Yes. At least how I thought of slasher movies going into it. I mean, any iconic idea that you have surrounding the summer camp slasher movie is here. And like it's all here unironically and unashamed from like camp counselor training to outrageous turn of the dime pickup lines, girls <laughs> skinny dipping at the, on the, at the lake at night, bear traps, machetes, <laughs> sitting around the campfire, sit, sitting around the campfire and telling spooky stories 
crazy old guys warning about doom is coming, the angry local sheriff who can't understand why these damn kids won't stop going to the lake, and cats literally jumping through windows. <laughs> this movie is base, and it is occasionally stupid. But in a long and somewhat grueling process of watching all these slasher movies with varied levels of oddity or cleverness, this thing is mana. This is comfort food that delivers the goods. And I honestly would not be surprised to see this in my top five at the end of this competition. Woo! Damn. Coming out with a bold statement. Um, you, you heard my audible reaction, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, Vic, tell us about uh, the opponent. Um, you've got some work to do, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that was... You really... <laughs> You built up to something there, Rich. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors. Fuck, I'm excited to talk about this. So 1987, uh, it was released. It was directed by Chuck Russell. Now, John, I, I, I'm not going to lie, Rich. I tuned you out for a minute because it, it dawned on me when he mentioned Steve Miner that we have dueling Copelson connections in that Steve Miner also directed Warlock, on which Arnold was EP, and That's Chuck right. Russell would go on to direct Eraser. Yes. For Arnold Copelson. So he would indeed. The, uh, this, the six degrees of, of Arnold Copelson continues. It was also co-written by Frank Darabont. Cool, right? And uh, as well as the, the great Wes Craven. Um, <laughs> it was budgeted for it, uh, about $4.5 million. It grossed just about $45 million worldwide. The logline uh, that I have myself concocted for this is that Freddy's back for more Elm Street kids as what looks like a rash of suicide attempts turns out to be the scarred serial killer's somnibulent handiwork and lands a group of teenagers in an institution where they'll have to work together to battle Freddy. There's just so much to say about this movie. Like, it's hard to know where to start, but how about we start at the beginning? Craven was apparently done with the series, wanted nothing to do with it, didn't want it to turn into a franchise, but it turned into a franchise anyway. So he agreed to work on this one, at least on the script, with the idea of trying to make this the end of the series. Oops. John, you'll be shocked to learn that uh, Craven's initial idea was bringing Freddy into the real world and having him attack the actors working on a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Fortunately mm -hmm. for you, New Line passed on this idea. Yay! Unfortunately. Unfortunately, they also passed on John Saxon's script because both John Saxon and Robert England wrote scripts for this. Robert England yeah. sounded meh. Listen to John Saxon's uh, uh, script, which I swear I'm not making up. No, I know. It was called How the Nightmare on Elm Street All Began. It was a prequel in which Freddy would ultimately turn out to have been innocent or at least set up for the murders by Charles Manson, who mm -hmm. along with his followers would have been the culprit, the main culprit in the murders. Now, if any listeners can access a copy of this script, please, please hit me up on our Mark Menman <laughs> Facebook page because I really want to read this. I heard about uh, that when John Saxon passed away, actually. Like, that was one of the stories that was circulating, and it, it kind of blew my mind that he wrote a draft for, for Nightmare 3. It's really fascinating. And the idea of folding in bananas, I don't know, it just sounds bananas. Like, I'm, I really want to know more. But having passed on both Craven's super meta idea and John Saxon's super awesome idea, they were forced to go with a more traditional story. So director Chuck Russell said, 
that Wes Craven's initial script was much darker and more profane, and that he and co-writer Darabont felt steering it more toward dark comedy was the way to go with it. And by most measuring sticks, he was right. It became the third highest grossing film in the franchise. It was generally well received by critics. It's got 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Janet Maslin of the New York Times, who famously walked out of the original Dawn of the Dead, wrote, The film's dream sequences are ingenious, and they feature some remarkable nightmare images and special effects. Excuse me. <laughs> you can, John, if you're editing this one, just leave that in. Oh, definitely. Uh, are you kidding? That's quality, that's quality you can't buy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to sample that later, drop it in randomly throughout different episodes. <laughs> Now, as you might imagine, Janet Maslin and I do not often see eye to eye, and this movie is no exception. I adored this movie when I was a kid. I loved the way it built up Freddy's mythology. I reveled in the empowerment of the teenagers when they discover that they can control their dreams. I loved that Nancy returned in all the ways that it felt connected to the first film. With this in mind, I revisited this movie several years ago and was extremely underwhelmed. In watching it again for this podcast, I was downright bored. The film has one of the most impressive casts in the competition, with Langenkamp, England, and Saxon returning, joined by future Oscar winner Patricia Arquette, Lawrence Fishburne, Craig Lawson, and Jennifer Rubin, not to mention Dick Cavett and Zsa Zsa Gabor, who still, th- every, every time, again, I've seen this movie half a dozen times, <laughs> still throws me for a fucking loop when the cast is, like, coming up at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I noticed that, like, 75% of the main titles cast are cameos. <laughs> They're recognizable yeah. names, but, like, only three of the before-the-titles uh, actors' names are principal characters. I, I can't think of ever seeing that, remember seeing that before. It basically squanders all of these actors. Nearly every character is reduced to a single trait. So the guy who makes puppets gets turned into a puppet. The girl who does drugs gets killed by drugs. The kid in the wheelchair gets killed by a wheelchair. The girl who wants to be on TV gets killed by a TV. How the fuck did they, how the fuck did they, did they peg that as a suicide, by the way? Right. Yeah, I, I, I stopped and had the same question. Exactly. <laughs> they, they got, like, the next day, they're just, like, back to work again. And they're just like, well, that was really unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> like, she was troubled. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're in the room later and the, the wall is like all like black from where the TV like burned the wall. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I think that kill, by the way, since you're talking about it, is the template for the goofier things we get down the stretch with this franchise. You know, I do yeah. think it's like the one of the quintessential, the early one liners that is like actually late Freddy, where he's like, This is it, Jennifer. You're a big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. <laughs> it's a hey. it's not even a one liner, it's a three liner. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that England. Uh, I read that that Robert England improvised that line too, which oh, yeah? is strange because it's it's kind of iconic among yeah. uh, Nightmare on Elm Street fans. So yeah, my, uh, my, my note was a viscerally effective kill, but a bit goofy. And no way is this a suicide. So what was the point of faking the suicides before? <laughs> yeah, just to complete the run, the nerd with the crush on the sexy nurse gets well attacked by the sexy nurse. Russell's effects, uh, the special effects in this, I they're not only like frequently laughable, they're unnecessary. 
This drives me crazy in this whole franchise. The creepiest elements for me are always the simplest. It's the leaves blowing in the hallway. It's Tina in the body bag. There's a perfect example early on here when Arquette's Kristen wakes up to this tricycle creeping slowly into her room seemingly by itself. That's fucking creepy, right? The wheels are leaving three trails of blood on the floor, and now that's a bit much, but it's still creepy. Then the tricycle starts to smoke, and then it melts somewhat unconvincingly (laughs) in the middle of the room. (laughs) And that shatters all the creepiness of the moment. One look at the, the giant worm Freddy or John Saxon battling an animated skeleton that's right out of Ray Harryhausen. (laughs) And you can see why Chuck Russell was a great choice for the mask, but not for this. I don't know. The one thing I actually do like is the backstory that they built out for Freddy, which is anchored by an unsettling performance by Nan Martin as a nun who keeps appearing to Wasson's psychiatrist. If only hints of these elements of the story had been incorporated into the dream sequences instead of, say, giant prehensile tongues, this might have been the classic that Wes Craven imagined it could be. Vic, don't wouldn't you agree though that a lot of the things you're saying apply double to New Nightmare? Didn't they use a lot of these same kinds of effects and stuff? John, I we we talked about this a, a, a lot. What sets New Nightmare apart is the the novelty of the conceit right. and the 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 sort of philosophical elements of it that it, that it brings into play. Yeah. This has none of that, and also all of the bad things. So yeah, I, okay. like I said I love this film. People go bonkers for this movie online and and in horror groups and Nightmare on Elm Street fans and stuff. And I get it because I have that nostalgia, but. It's like Red Dawn, man. It just doesn't hold up. Ouch. Well, because the original is still in this tournament, and technically so is New Nightmare, I just had to kind of compare it to New Nightmare. It just seemed impossible not to, and I think it's a cut above that movie in terms of writing in general, dialogue specifically. Obviously, the creativity and the impact of the set pieces is far superior. In many cases, it's the template that New Nightmare is merely copying itself uh, years later. I I honestly thought that, yes, you kind of have to grade it on a curve. It's 1987, and they were pushing the envelope a little bit. But I think the effects and creature designs, physical sets, all of it is much more striking and fresh than anything that they came up with for the later film which, again, I think is just weekly recycling elements from previous installments in the franchise. And I got really sick of that Freddy Glove as a great white shark fin. But putting aside the comparison, yes, these things don't completely hold up to the modern eye, especially the Ray Harryhausen stuff, which I used the exact same reference. But I just I found it a little more charming than you did, honestly. I think I, I'm surprised to, to say I enjoyed this a bit more than I thought I would. The acting, I think, is a little stiff, but I like the characters more than the New Nightmare uh, characters. There's creepy touches in this, you know, hearkening back to the child killer, child molester part of Freddy, which I think distinguishes him from all the other slashers I can think of. There's a little girl... Fear Street 78. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Child molester Uh, and Fear Street 78? Child murderer. Okay. Is he is he acknowledged as a child molester in this film? Because we know nah. he wasn't in the first. I don't think he is, right? No, yeah. he isn't. That was something that they introduced in the in the Jackie Earl Haley remake. 
Yeah, I think molester might be strong, but this is its own conversation about Freddy that we can probably have later because obviously these movies are going to be a part of our tournament. But the little girl in the dream tells Kristen, this is where he takes us. They don't get super literal about it. But I mean, I, I think the the hints are there. We we could look into it. I Certainly knowing what Wes Craven was doing with Last House on the Left and things previous, I, I don't think he would hold back from insinuations like that. But I just think it puts him and Freddy in a much nastier category that none of these other slashers, you know, fit into. And yeah, the franchise never really steers into it. And it, it either usually tap dances around it or jettisons it completely. But I think it's often there subtextually. And I'm pretty sure it was there originally. I don't know. That's pretty freaking disturbing. Now, it does beg the question, why does Freddy graduate to teenagers once he's dead? Either if he's, you know, if he, even if you just call him a child killer or not a child molester. Clearly, he's, like, aging up his, his victim base. Well, <laughs> well, they're the last of the, in this movie, they're right. the last of the Elm Street. That's, you're right, you're right. That, that, they do kind of trot that out, that this is sort of a vindictive uh, sins of the father are, are being visited upon the children kind of scenarios. You're right. Yeah, and, after, and, this, after this movie, there's no excuses. But mm-hmm. One of the things that I, that I noted in this is I think more so than any other franchise, the parents in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies are awful people. Yes. Like, Kristen's mother is just, she, like, she's just awful. And I do, like, that is something I feel like that sets this apart. This really is a movie about terrible, terrible parents and their kids sort of trying to escape from under the, the shadow, like you said, the sins of the father that are sort of passed down to them. When I was watching it, I just started doing notes as if we were going to do an autopsy, you know, and that does not usually happen with the films in this tournament, these old slasher movies and stuff. I just was like, oh, I want to say something about that. Oh, I want to say something about that. So even though I knew, like, I was going to vote for Friday, I was already kind of, like, conflicted. I'm like, damn, I am i can't stop making comments about this movie. So I do think it's very interesting and worthy of further discussion. But anyway, I wrote, I know it's very convenient to the plot, but the Nightmare movies really make it seem like parents in the 80s were the absolute worst. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that's thematically relevant to the times, you know. Well, uh, well, also you're talking about a movie that's being seen from the teenager's perspective. Yeah, well, when your yeah. parents are the worst, and and a movie that is, as we just said, a movie that's about teenagers being punished for actions that their parents took. Yeah, not only all of that, but as I was alluding to, you know, you, you don't want to deal with the parents as a writer or as a director. You know, you want the kids to have to solve their own problems. So a great way to get them kind of off stage is, oh, they're drunk, they're passed out, they don't care, they're out on a date, whatever. It does serve the, the, the plot, of course. It's not just thematics. And by the way, you mentioned your son, Vic, with the crucifix part of the chant. Uh, I, I was thinking... Only better stay up late is helpful advice in the jump rope rhyme about Freddy. Because nobody ever tries a crucifix, but I have to assume it wouldn't do you any good, right? It actually it factors into the climax of the of of this film, if you if you recall correctly. Oh, you know, I a side note, I, I meant to finish the movie tonight and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I missed I missed the climax. Too, too busy taking notes. Yeah, there's there's a there's a crossfix in the third act. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I let 
me ask you this, because this was like the first uh, note that I wrote down, and it goes for the entire franchise, right? This idea that like the solution to Freddy is just to stay awake seems really dumb to me. Mm-hmm. Like it's like watching kid watching kids uh, uh, chug coffee and like you know shovel Folgers instant coffee into their mouth than this and wash it down with Diet Coke. I'm like, what is your end game here? Right, they're just buying yeah. time. I mean, I, again, teenagers, no long term plan, Vic. Right. You know, they just they're just they're just living in the moment. They deserve to die, Rich. That's what I'm yeah, saying. exactly. They're asking for it. That that's not a bad rejoinder, I have to say, because that is that is the teenage mindset uh, for a lot of us. There's a line in this movie that you would never get in one of the lesser sequels, where Doctor Gordon, played by Craig Wasson, is talking to Larry Fishburne, the orderly, and Wasson has the theory that the cause of the recent suicides are sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and Fishburne goes, shit, that's what keeps people alive. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. He's really good in this. Yes, yeah. he is. Oh, of course. I mean, do you expect anything else? But yeah, he's so natural. He makes it look easy. One other one thing I wanted to touch on just briefly is that Hypnosil figures in this one. And of course, that's a major plot element in Freddy vs. Jason a number of years later. What is? Hypnosil, which is the prescription drug that Nancy wants uh, to get the uh, kids on. Right, right, right. We hit the idea hard that Freddy is the boogeyman, and as we discussed, you know, in the early episodes about our selection for the show, it really, like, by the letter of the law, this guy is a roaming ghost. He's not a slasher, you know, but, and the movie is playing him that way. However, a lot of slashers, including Halloween, drop the boogeyman epithet on on the killer, so... I'll allow it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, it's like your it's your freedom as a writer to take this story in any damn direction that you want down the line. That he just becomes like the boogeyman. One of the things I think that this movie benefits from. I watched all of these movies back to back several years ago. Um, I haven't rewatched all of them recently. I remember part two being quite bad. I saw it for the first time three or four years ago, and I I thought it was like a weird hybrid of like the later goofy ones and the first one, in that it was like much darker, and Freddy was actually closer to his the Freddy in the original than he is in in any of the other movies. So there were things to like about it. Okay, I mean my my impression of this one was like this actually was kind of about the right balance. Like after mm-hmm. this. He became much more goofy and, and quippy. And this one actually benefits from sort of a lack of Freddy. He is not really the lead character in this. He's not constantly being beat up for one-liners. As you implied, he, he has like one that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the series. But other than that, he's not showing up and pulling out a lot of dialogue. And I think that that's better. Like, I think that the lack of cat and mouse is actually a good thing and the later films suffered from this. You know, nothing against England. It's that I think that he he has a lot of, like, presence on his own as a character and can evoke a lot from his, like, physicality. You know, whereas, like, later they were relying on, you know, kind of, like, huckster dialogue that was just trying to get a laugh out of the crowd. And so I actually appreciated the, the amount of restraint here. You know, but I, I did think that there were some dream effects in here that were good. I really like the, the bathroom faucets that, that turn into the claws. And yeah. it's an it's it's such an interesting mix 
just because of the time period that it's made in and the choices that they made of these practical and digital effects. And it just like varies wildly from scene to scene what kind of quality you're getting, uh, <laughs> both in terms of like execution, but just, just in terms of like medium. Because sure, you get this big practical Freddy snake like coming out of the wall that feels like it's actually in the room with them. And then you get like a crazy scene where the, the clicking like balls like float into the air and like some of you're dealing with these very chintzy late 90s visual effects where it's like everything is like a, is a composite. So like the, the quality of the movie actually seems to get worse as you go on because they try to get more and more elaborate with what they're doing visually, which forces them to, to do more and more uh, digitally, which is, was not their strength. In, in 1987. Yeah, and there's some disturbing visuals. I mean, like the, the 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 gaping like track marks on Taryn's arm is something that like kind of stuck with me. I I don't know if I have I don't know if like Universal Studios when they do their Halloween Horror Nights, I don't know if they just replay the kills from this movie on a loop over and over again, or if these kills are especially indelible. But like I watching this movie, all I could think about was like the sound of like Rob Zombie blaring over loudspeakers. You know, while like teens are like vaping behind me as we wait for the terror tram, like the <laughs> they they were fond of running the like the Freddy kills like over and over on a loop. But I do feel like these kills are some of the more indelible visuals, even if, as Vic implied, you know they're about two inches deep. I think you kind of nailed it, and like this is the quintessential Freddy movie in that. The first one is not truly indicative of what the bulk of the franchise is, but this is the only one that does the blueprint that all of the other sequels except New Nightmare, I'll give it that, copy. It. This is the only one that, that executes that effectively, where it works, you know, and it's really memorable and kind of iconic. And so, yeah, that's why I, I think it has... It definitely has a place in, in history. And you mentioned kills. I thought the puppet string tendon shit was very cool and nasty where the guy you know like the strings are actually part of him organically and it's like he's he's being mutilated while he's being manipulated i thought that was cool yeah agreed okay well vic any any final thoughts on this i don't kind of don't know what to say about about nightmare i mean this seems like just a a genuine difference of opinion because like i said i loved this movie and just my opinion of it has just gone down and down and down. I was unimpressed. I feel like there is still a great Nightmare on Elm Street movie to be made that no one has quite has quite nailed. Well, I certainly agree but, that there's upside potential. I mean, yeah, Vic, it's called Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> That's it. The, the first one. That one was a fine, was a perfectly fine movie. It's true. But yes, three, three, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that. Obviously, it's great. But I, even that, I would say, I don't know. I just, I like I said, the, the simplicity of the dream imagery, I feel like Craven and and then Chuck Russell, everybody gets pulled in this direction of like, what if Freddy had screaming faces on his chest? Again, none, like, none of that shit is as scary as the leaves blowing through the hall or Tina in the body bag. And so it's like, if you, I feel like there's just, there's a different approach to this that could be done. Shit, I got to call Blumhouse. Damn it. <laughs> kind of a back to basics you, approach is what you're saying? You could, yeah, you could do this for, for $2 million and have it be scary as fuck. 
And I feel like as the budgets got higher and they tried to do more, like Rich said, the, the, they got they they pushed the effect sort of further and well, further and further through this. It's not completely ineffective, but I just think the scariest things in all of these movies to me is a tricycle rolling into a room and everything else might look OK again for the time or whatever. But like, why would you why would you do it? Like, why would you put yourself in a position to have to use unconvincing effects when there's so much more simple things that would be so much more effective in terms of setting the atmosphere and the mood and and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I just I it seems to me ill conceived from the get go. I would not have made this a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I, I agree with you, but I do feel like your complaint has a real like old man screaming at clouds kind of quality to it. <laughs> Like, why can't they just bring back the leaves and the tricycles? Why are they always got to, like, put faces on his chest? Could you have a red ball just bounce down through the, down the stairs? Maybe a wheelchair? Chase somebody? Right. Could you put in George C. Scott? by a wheelchair, John. You didn't finish the movie. Somebody does get chased by a wheelchair. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think ball, you... the, the red ball bouncing down the stairs is scarier than anything in this movie. You do raise a valid point because like the era this movie came out and the fact that it made the first one made so much money meant that it was the anti Bloomhouse approach. And if somehow like nobody if Wes Craven Wes had come up had been younger and come up with this idea in two thousand five, you would have had four Bloomhouse movies that were all like really cheap and stripped down and minimalist and probably would be exactly what you're asking for because they weren't going to blow it up into these, you know, big bloated VFX heavy would be blockbusters because the paradigm was so different. So in a, in a way it's kind of sad that we only got one movie remotely like that. And then, because of the times, it immediately turned into the Star Wars of horror movies, right? I, I'll always remember the first time I saw this movie, because it kind of blew me away when I was 12. And I will agree with you, Mike and I actually watched it four or five years ago, and yeah, I just kind of scoffed. And I'm, I'm a big reason why it's an 11 seed. I did not rank it that highly, and I don't think this watch or half watch, you know, moves it up dramatically. It did kind of remind me of the sort of lightning of a, in a bottle that the film did catch at the time and how innovative it's trying to be. So so props for that. Let's see. Hang on. Let me see if I have anything I want to bring up on Friday. Rich, Rich did a wonderful job. Yes, he did. I'll tell you what. I have this. I wrote this in the middle of my notes. I may have been high. <laughs> Am, ambiguous feet. Anybody... <laughs> Well, I'm thinking. I'm thinking there was like there was like a random shot of like feet, and you weren't supposed to know if it was you were supposed to think it was oh, Jason, but really it was somebody else. That's my that's my guess for what ambiguous feet meant. Uh, it that rings. A good band name. <laughs> it would be a good band name. It rings a bell for me because I, I I okay I watched half of Nightmare on Elm Street three. I watched none of this um, for the show. I do kind of remember like some. POV games and identity games with with shoes. And this was a period, like the first couple Friday the 13th movies, you never knew what shoes Jason might be wearing. But you see various pairs. Yeah, they were generally kind of anonymous, right? It's not like he was wearing spurs or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there uh, was ambiguity. 
I do one more thing I want to say about Friday is uh, I, I wrote this down and I feel really I feel really good about this. Uh, the quote, "Come on, let's sneak over to Camp Blood," means you're the most fucked characters in movie history. <laughs> <laughs> you you get what you paid for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Here's my blurb on Friday the Thirteenth. I did not need to see it again because, as I put it, and I think this kind of resonates with what what Rich said, I think it's a low-key masterpiece, Friday the 13th Part 2, and Dream Warriors isn't. It's something else, which is fine, but I think the true blueprint for an F-13 movie is laid down here, not in the first one. The tension and atmosphere of Part 2 is right up there with the best of them. I do disagree, I guess, with, with Rich to a degree, is that I, I call the kills top tier as far as being classic, memorable, characteristic Jason at work type stuff. Though, of course, I do agree that, yeah, we don't have Tom Savini effects. I will point out the wheelchair kills, probably top five for the entire series. As far as being iconic and cinematic and memorable and unique, I think, for me, we have probably my favorite final girl defeats Jason beat of all time. Amy Steele earns her win by being clever, not just by having hero armor, getting lucky, or being rescued. This was another blueprint kind of a thing that other movies, other franchises have copied. The way she accesses the killer's psychology and successfully plays him. I think it's something relevant to real life, as sometimes the victim has no other way to earn a chance of success but defusing the bomb that her attacker or abuser represents. I love that. And then after that, we get a stinger ending that is close to, if not at, the level of impact in part one, or carry, which of course is what they're all going for with their stinger ending. The youthful and spry baghead Jason is unique in the Pantheon, and as we discussed on our It's Always Friday season of this podcast, a special incarnation of this particular slasher that's never duplicated. And I I really appreciate this brief window in time in Jason's life and unlife. One of the many less headline attractions of the movie, but something I feel compelled to note nonetheless, is that it introduces a realistic number of characters, instead of trying to explain why there's five or six people here. And then it gives us a good reason why we get down to a smaller, more manageable number to be present for Jason's murder spree. I've always respected the way this film gets comedic mileage and character beats from people without having to then later kill them off. Creates a more believable scenario while being more entertaining along the way i think we're gonna we're gonna talk more about this one i, I went yeah. back and listened to our old podcast as well which i think had some some really good points if anybody hasn't listened to that go back and listen to john mike and i talk about friday the 13th part two because we really we put some good ideas out there when we when we talked about that thanks for pointing that out yeah yeah we did we did well gentlemen uh it's a clean sweep right i mean do we even have to go through the formality three votes for friday done well, maybe we'll double back and give Dream Warriors a, a deeper look at some point. Who knows? It probably would be a fun exercise, but we're on to the next matchup. All right, we're going to break this episode in half right there. Tune in next time for a discussion of two very different slashers from different decades, Tenebra and Haunt. Until then, adios. Adios.